0: midtown detroit studios of wdet
1: this is detroit today artificial intelligence has been top of mind for many thinkers around the world with the rise of ChatGPT. it's causing lots of questions in many industries including education as many educators work to figure out whether it's a net positive or negative and how to use it moving forward We'll tackle those questions with three professors this hour, plus look at how robots generally fit into our world through history. That's next on Detroit Today, but first the news from NPR. Welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Nick Austin filling in for Stephen Henderson. As humans, we often prefer not to think about things too hard. It's not a knock on people. Thinking takes a lot of work and a lot of humility. It's hard to know when we're actually right about a particular topic. And it's difficult to be open about so many different possible truths, especially in the same moment. Over the years, some believe technology has made things easier. It's made thinking easier. Consider the massive amount of scientific articles, thought pieces, documentaries, and books accessible online. This isn't to mention that all of the explainer videos and texts that we see uh, that help us through the daily activities that we take in. Frankly speaking, there's a lot of information out there to help us go through these thoughts. Well, technology particularly artificial intelligence, has only been improving. And recently, OpenAI's ChatGPT, an AI chatbot, has received notoriety for its capacity to rapidly accumulate synthesized information. At present, it is being used for a lot. Businesses are using ChatGPT to create copy for their websites and to respond to customer service inquiries. Lawyers are using it to produce legal briefs. And students are using it to study and to assist with homework. Although it's summer, many professors and teachers are still working. They're tinkering with different ideas and problem sets and trying to become better educators in the classroom. And this year, many of them are considering ChatGPT more than anything else. They are concerned about plagiarism, but they're also worried about students who are skipping over critical and educational tasks. Tasks like doing research, improving quantitative skills, and critically thinking. Some are concerned about nothing less than the state of education itself. But others, they're pretty excited. They're energized about what can be learned and what can be gained by having so much synthesized information so readily available. And they're trying to teach students how to use ChatGBT to expand their knowledge. Here with us today, we have three professors who all have different perspectives on ChatGPT, on what it can do, and how it should be used in the classroom. To start off, we're joined by Professor Jules White, an associate professor and associate dean of strategic learning at Vanderbilt University. He created an open online course for students to learn how to use ChatGPT. Professor White, welcome to Detroit Today.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: Also in studio with us, we have Professor Shobitha Parthasarithi, who is the director of science technology and public policy at the University of Michigan. Professor Parthasarithi, welcome to Detroit Today. Good morning. And finally, we have Professor Anthony Amen, a philosophy professor at Northern Michigan University. Professor Amen, welcome to Detroit Today as well. Thanks for having me. So we'll start off with you, like I said, Professor White. And I think we're going to ask all the professors this just to get an overview of where we're at. What are your initial thoughts, uh, Professor White, on ChatGPT?
2: Well, I think it's one of the most profound um, tools for improving human creativity and productivity that's ever been um, invented. And so from my perspective, it's this huge um, potential for our students and we have to make sure that they become world experts, both in the use of it, but also in understanding the appropriate use of it and also how to develop policy around it. So our strategy right now, Vanderbilt just launched a future of learning and generative AI initiative that I'm directing. And so our goal is to make our students, world experts on this topic, and to do everything we can to support their learning with it, but also to think about how we reimagine the classroom using these technologies.
1: Uh, Professor Parsis, the Rethi, the same question to you. Where are your thoughts on ChatGPT?
3: Well, I approach this as someone who thinks about uh, technology in society, and I guess my thoughts are that it, I'm a little bit more tempered about it. I don't, I don't fit into either camp of either horror or panacea. Um, what I would say to folks is that uh, two things, I suppose. First, it's not magic. Um, and it's also not an asteroid. It's a build, It's more like a building than an asteroid in the sense that it is us. It is something that's built by humans with data from us. Um, and the way that it evolves also depends on us.
1: Yeah, good points there. And finally to you, Professor Alman, what are your thoughts on ChatGPT?
4: I'm also in the camp of thinking about it as something that is both a blessing and a curse. And right now, I'm particularly preoccupied with the challenge it creates for us as teachers, especially in the humanities. For so long, we've linked teaching students how to think with teaching them how to write. But now that ChatGPT is doing a lot of the writing for the students, and I think it's good for them to use the chat to help them write, we have to reconsider how we're gonna go about this really crucial task of teaching them how to think critically.
1: Yeah, and you know, thinking critically is something that I think has been difficult to teach throughout time. So now that we have this new tool and humans haven't exactly mastered it, how can we get better at it is what I'm hearing from all three of you. And we want you out there listening to uh, be a part of this conversation as well. Are you a teacher, parent, or student? How do you feel about ChatGPT? Do you think we should use technology to teach our kids? Uh, And do you think it will make us smarter? Or do you think we should be a little bit more skeptical of it? And uh, do you think people might become lazier and poorer thinkers as a result? Give us a call, 313-577-1019, and we can work you into the conversation that way. Jen on Twitter said, I would suggest what my high school teachers did with Wikipedia, show where it can be a jumping off point. Bluntly warn of dangers, limitations, potential, potential disinformation, and design assignments with requirements that can't easily be completed by or using Wiki Chat GPT. You know, that's something that I know that we talked about with Wikipedia when that was an issue coming up and it was trying to figure out exactly where to how to create those, right? Different uh different disciplines might have an easier time creating assignments like that versus other ones like math, you know. There's kind of math you just do math, right? How do you work around that? But I want to get back to you Professor White because one of the things you said was that you're working on designing a course that uh, allows teachers or allows students, I should say, to better use, know how to better use the the chat GPT. Well, I mean, I can say I want to do that, but what are you doing to design a course like that? What are some of the things that you have found that have been helpful in creating a course to uh, help people master that?
2: Yeah, well, most people first to just start off, they don't really understand its level of capability. So it's much deeper than just being able to have it, you know, answer a question for you. Um, so we start off by sort of showing the possibilities, giving the examples of things that are really sophisticated. So an example I usually start off with is, you know, I can ask it, you know, create a meal plan for me that's a combination of Uzbekistan food and Ethiopian food that's keto and I can get all the ingredients at an average US grocery store. That would be a really complex task to have anybody do, um, and it can do it you know instantaneously. And then you can take that and you can say, You know, now I'd like you to create a set of Pokemon battle stories that end with a cliffhanger that motivate my nine-year-old to eat each dish. And it can do that. And then you can take it further and you can say, okay, now play a game with my nine-year-old to teach him about math and nutrition and fractions that involves the Pokemon um, battle stories and all of the dishes that you've created. And it can go and do that and start explaining the math behind it to a nine-year-old. And so that level of depth and um, capability is not something that people really generally understand that's present in there. So we start off by really showing them all of these types of capabilities. And then all of these capabilities are based on the human language that you put into your prompt. The prompt is basically the statements that you make to it. So all of those, the way it reacts and responds to human language is built out on pattern. So there are patterns that it's learned from human language. And so we teach people about the patterns that it responds to. And we show them how, if you have certain patterning in your language, you can tap into different types of capabilities, like the ability to act as a persona. So go and pretend to be, um, you know, a speech-language pathologist and diagnose this speech for me and tell me what the report might look like. Or you can have even have it, you know, and this is one I'm gonna use for my cybersecurity class in the fall, is I can say act as a computer that's been the victim of a cyber attack I'm going to type in Linux commands, which are computer commands, and you'll respond with what that computer would respond to. And it can actually simulate an entire computer just by giving it this persona to take on. So we really focus on on going into all of these deeper capabilities that most people don't understand how to tap into, and then teach them all of the patterns behind them. And and the patterns are things that anybody can learn to put into their language in order to use these capabilities.
1: You know, all right. So hearing you say that, that's great. And it's good to know about that for your classroom. But of course, not everybody has access to the classroom. And one of the things I've learned when using ChatGPT is I think it's really good at telling me what it thinks I want to hear to get over, right? Like it's a Good BSer, I would say with consideration of the FCC Uh, for folks who do some, Does someone need to have your class to figure that out? Or what do you say about the concerns with disinformation with someone who thinks they put in a good prompt, but maybe it wasn't as good a prompt or maybe chat GPT doesn't have the answer, but tries to make you think it did?
2: Well, I think you have to start and back people up and, and explain what it is. It's not a question answering machine. So it's basically you give it statements the in text form and it generates statements in text form and those statements that it produces can look like they're answering your question but that's not the point of the tool now the key is to learn how to pattern your statements in order to do things that um, are really you know valuable but then at the end of the day the text that you're getting out is just that it's text and you're still responsible for it you have to own it you have to fact check it you have to use it and so like If you're writing computer code, you have to go and run it and test it. If you're writing an essay and it has facts and uh, supposed facts in the essay, you have to have it go into uh, and you have to go check those facts. At the same time, there's ways of of writing the statements where you can provide it information and say, here's what your analysis or your text has to be based on. And you can provide it the set of citations in the prompt and you can say, go back and cite from the information that I gave you and it will do it. And then you can easily check that it that lines up. So it's really about learning how to use the tool properly, what it's supposed to do, you know, not thinking of it as this oracle that you can just answer, ask arbitrary questions, but really thinking of it as a text generator. Um, And then also you have to learn how to use it appropriately. And a lot of what we're seeing where people are upset about disinformation, things like that, is really about people using it inappropriately, because unfortunately there's not enough education. People have had this tool and gotten access hmm. to it, but they really don't understand it. And yeah. if you don't understand it, you can't use it properly.
1: Yeah, well, people have been misusing tools for a long time. I suspect that's why uh, you, Professor uh, Parthasarathy, uh, Parthasarathy, excuse Parthasarathy uh, have some concerns, as you mentioned a little bit earlier. You discussed that it's created by humans, but there are still some things that we don't understand so much about this, even though with it's our creation. What response would you have to the professor?
3: Well, I guess what I would say is... I would say a few things. I mean, I agree that it's an important tool. I think we have to figure out how we want to use it and also how we want to control access to it um, and how we might want to control um, how it is uh, kind of evolving as well. Um, And when I think about how to use it in the classroom, I think about the fact that it's not the first time uh, that we've had to deal with technology. As as your caller said, um, you know, we've had to deal with Wikipedia, of course, we've had to deal with the internet, with calculators, with the typewriter. I mean, it really, our history is one of managing uh, different assistive technologies, right? But I think that there is an opportunity here. There is a cool new technology and people are excited about using it and playing with it and seeing what they might be able to do with it. For me, I think that what's important about it is that we can provide an opportunity for people to think critically, especially for students to think critically about technology, about emerging technologies, what it can do and what it can't do and where it comes from. I think it's really important in the case of these generative AI or large language models to think about the fact that they're being developed by a small handful of huge companies Uh, And they're being developed on the basis of our data, as I said Mm -hmm. before, right? So these are technologies that are crawling the internet, crawling open data, basically, and collecting that data and then um, developing patterns and developing the output as a result. And one of the things that I think there's an opportunity to talk to students about is that if the data in these models is based on historical information, then it is gonna reflect that history. And in part, we are evolving as a society and we don't necessarily want to stay stuck in history. Um, For example, in terms of the way we interact with one another, the way we talk about one another. And there's already been evidence uh, that suggests that it is kind of stuck in history in, in various ways. The other thing that's important to keep in mind is that, and again, this is about reminding folks generally, but also students in particular, that the data is, is you know, it's, it's not ubiquitous kind of objective data. Right. It is our data. Right. So that also means that it's based on Anglo-American data. Mostly this is English language data, um, a little bit of data in Chinese. And what that means is it tends to reflect Anglo-American perspectives on the world. Um, and so those are the kinds of things uh, that if you start to talk to students about, They might think a little bit more critically, not just about this technology, but all of the technologies that they're increasingly confronting. um, And it might change their interaction with it a little bit. And that's not. To get into the fact that you know the generative AI is not ChatGPT is not an oracle, right? Right. right? right <laughs> it's right. It's, a, it's an aggregator sort of. Yeah. Um, it's an average. Uh, it's an average machine.
1: Yeah. A lot of themes I'm hearing there. First of all, we all hear the phrase "garbage in, garbage out." You got to yep. r- be worried about what's going into the system, and also using it responsibly. I'm going to the phone lines responsibly right now with Rich in Detroit to start us off. Rich, go ahead. You're on Detroit today.
0: Uh, yes, I just wanted to kind of make a a brief comment. Um, technology, although it's amazing, and especially with the school system, but we should have learned a lesson with um, kind of dumbing down the education system and
1: youth. Do you have a specific thing with you're the, thinking of?
0: Well, you know, with the COVID that happened mm. you've got all these billionaires mm-hmm. tech people pharma that are you know it's great for them because they're making billions and trillions of dollars for okay. our kids that are in the school system in the teachers that I've talked to they're not too happy with this because
1: you too, know, like too say, happy with chat GPT down. too happy to they're not well, too
0: happy I with... you know maybe not this particular Fair. system but Let's have the machines do it for us so we can just sit back and enjoy life. Uh, it doesn't work that
1: way. I, I appreciate we're your concerns. I, I appreciate your concerns and point there, Rich. I understand. Don't let, every, don't let the computers be involved with everything here. Specifically, we're talking about artificial intelligence. And thank you, uh, Rich, in Detroit for bringing up that point. I present this to you, uh, Professor White. You're also someone who was a little bit skeptical. Do you think that we're just offloading too much of our work onto systems we don't understand?
2: Well, no, I, I think that uh, we need to be engaging with them more. So I'm definitely not in the skeptic camp. I'm certainly, I think that there's huge potential in And if you look at the educational aspect, I think there's a huge potential for personalized learning, but also the ability for them to generate content. So if you take in a simple thing, like um, you have a student and they may have a limited number of practice problems or on a topic, they may have a limited ability to customize that learning to their particular tastes. That's something you can do really easily with a tool like this. Generate additional quizzes for me. Ask me questions about this topic. Yeah. Um, you know, take it and make it about Pokemon like I did with my son, you know, to make it more fun or whatever the interests of that child are. And so I think there's actually, you know, if you are really rich and you're in a school system, you can get incredibly personalized learning for your child, um, you know, just because you have the money to pay for it. But now if you have a tool like this, you can do the same types of things using technology. So I actually think it gives us a huge ability to Um, do things in education that we couldn't have done before because of the cost and the inability to scale it. I
1: appreciate that uh, counterpoint to that and when we return here on Detroit Today, we're going to loop Professor Allman back into the conversation to get your perspective, uh, Professor, on uh, what we've been saying so far. We're also going to hear from you out there. Give us a call, 313-577-1019. Where do you think ChatGPT fits in our education system? Are you someone who's been recently going through university and had uh, ChatGPT or high school that you've worked with? What's that experience been like for you. Give us a call as Detroit Today continues in just a moment.
2: For news that impacts your community,
3: music that moves your soul, and conversations
1: that matter, W-D-E-T,
4: Detroit's NPR
2: station.
1: On 1019 WDET. I'm Nick Austin filling in for Steven Henderson. Taking a look at ChatGPT, it's been on the thoughts of many out there, especially thought leaders in education, and how a lot of educators are looking at it and how it plays into the role of education. Uh, we've got three professors with us, one of whom uh, I want to go to next, Professor Anthony Allman, a philosophy professor at Northern Michigan University. Uh, you've been, can you tell us a little bit about how you plan to address? chat bt in your classroom uh, or how you addressed it this uh, past semester
4: hey thanks Um, I guess I want to start by saying that I disagree with the caller a little bit sure I don't think that chat GPT should lead to the dumbing down of the college experience or any kind of educational experience but quite the opposite I think it's going to lead to the raising of our standards across the board this is certainly what I've done in my class Now that they have this amazing tool at their disposal, I should expect excellence from all of them. (laughs) Um, (laughs) You know, if you can have this chat thing do part of your writing, I should expect you to be doing a quality work regardless of your educational background. And one of the reasons, actually, one of the reasons for this is important because it ties back to something that you said about the chat being a bit of a BSer. So I think that the chat is great because it can give individualized feedback to students. Like professors are overwhelmed. They have too many responsibilities. They can't always give individualized attention to each student. So ask the chat for individualized feedback. The problem is that it's a BSer, not just in the sense that it makes up stuff, but in the sense that it flatters you. Mm-hmm. It's, it's kind of like a yes man. It oh, yeah. like really wants to tell you that you're good at doing what you're doing. And so if the goal is to get critical feedback for students, it's sometimes a little bit hard there.
1: Yeah, no, I've had that exact same experience uh, when I've used it as well. You're like, wait a second, I don't know about this, especially when I've had to look up some things and it's not exactly been uh, factually accurate, we might say. Uh, A little bit difficult because I've been trying to use it to learn a foreign language. So that gets me a little bit more nervous because I'm like, is that actually a word? But uh, we'll have to figure that out. Maybe that's why I need to Send out the shekels to just get private tutoring as we move right now to Dave in West Bloomfield. Dave, go ahead. You're on Detroit today. Go ahead.
0: I'm really excited about Tech I'm actually on my way into work. I am a tech teacher at a nonprofit, and I help people with their resume writing and cover letters and learning basic computing. And I give a demo that, you know, I'm helping them with their resume, and we're struggling to write a professional summary statement. Boom! There's your demo, right? Mm, mm-hmm. It's amazing, and, and their faces light up when they see it. And I tell them, you know, rewrite it in your own words. You know, use this as a rough draft.
1: Yeah, and you know, Dave, I do like that you're using it kind of like as a supplement. The question would be when we start relying it to take the place of things that teachers do. That's what I get a little bit concerned of. The fast two things I'm hearing about are, hey, it can do all of these great things. It can make us more efficient. But in my experience, when we've got more efficient at things, we start relying on that, and then we don't necessarily, you know, have the same number of teachers or things like that. I want to loop you back into the conversation, uh, uh, Professor. Um, You're talking about or when I'm talking about concerns with uh, maybe downsizing some of our education is that something that you're thinking about as people start offloading uh, responsibilities on chat GPT
3: well what I would say is the way I'm I'm thinking about it in my classroom and I should say I am a professor of public policy uh, I teach students how to write policy memos yeah. and <clears throat> With policy memos, we emphasize clarity and conciseness. And those are not qualities that chat GPT has. Um, so that's one of the things that I think about. It's not particularly clear, concise to the point, And that's something that I want to emphasize to my students. The other thing that I think is important to, to talk to students about and to think about, um, I certainly am thinking about it um, as a scholar, is that it's changing the way we think about the nature of knowledge production because it's particularly bad at generating citations it doesn't automatically of course generate citations for its work and when you ask it to generate references it often cobbles them together and so it's not actually accurately showing um, what the correct references is for the knowledge that it's providing you it's it's actually engineered not to do that so when we when we're trying to teach students one of the things that's so important for students is to learn that you know knowledge again didn't come from on high it's not an oracle it has a history right and it's really important to remember that so that they understand that people participated in making knowledge and that that they too can participate in making that knowledge. And how they do that is through the citation practices, right? So one of the ways that I think we can also manage this is to encourage students (coughs) to actually use citations and to look for citations. And that's something that I've often done with Wikipedia in the past. And so this is kind of ramping that up quite a bit.
1: Yeah, it's very important to learn those uh, good lessons, good educational lessons as we move right now to Graham in Southeast Michigan. Graham, go ahead, you're on Detroit today.
4: Hello, thanks for having me. Um, Yeah, I'm calling because I'm uh, going to be starting uh, to teach uh, college-level literature and writing courses next year, so this is a matter of concern for me. Uh, I think it raises a lot of existential questions. Uh, For example, in elementary school, everybody used to, you know, learn to write in cursive, and that's become obsolete now to some extent among younger uh, generations, and I'm wondering uh, if we don't sort of incorporate... Uh
1: you still there, Graham? I guess he's worried about writing skills deteriorating if that's not something that uh, we're uh, really focusing in on and with the rise of CHAT-GPT. Professor White, I loop you into that uh, question. What response would you have to that concern?
2: Yeah, well, I, I think that there's a couple of good points that have been made. So one is, you know, a lot of times if you just go and ask it to generate something, you're going to get something that's very average, you know, and it may not be targeted to the domain. So I think we have to think of it as a tool to help us produce communication, but we still have to make that communication good. You still have to own it. You still have to understand how to refine it, how to edit it. My, my father was a professor of creative writing. Um, so obviously we've had a lot of deep conversations about this and, and I'm not concerned about it at all, like taking away people's ability to write. You're still going to have to be able to go and write unless you want to sound average all the time and potentially have factually inaccurate things, then I, I I don't think you're just going to rely on this. And the key is that we really have to in, you know, teach students why you're not just going to take the output of chat GPT and use it. We're gonna have to teach them that what it produces, you can then take it and improve it like was discussed in some of the examples. You know, I think it, raising the bar in terms of the standard of what we expect, I think that's absolutely one of the um, sort of exciting outcomes is it's not you can't just turn in a middling essay anymore and say, hey, that's good enough. I wrote it, right? We can expect a lot more. And in particular, we can expect a lot more in terms of the thought, right? If it's gonna be easier for you to produce the actual text, we should expect a lot more in terms of the thinking that went into that text. But we should also expect students to be able to go and refine the language. And if they have a starting point, they should have a lot more time for editing and refinement if that's how they're going to approach it. But I think we also have to think about other ways that it can you know, do unique things in the humanities. And I'd, and I'd like to call out something that one of my colleagues, Holly Tucker, who's head of the Robert Penn Warren Center at Vanderbilt, and she's a, a professor in French. And so she's using it, for example, she's having students go in and use ChatGPT to generate dialogues between historical figures um, in the French Revolution. And so they're having to really learn and think about and look at the dialogues that are being created through chat GPT amongst these uh, historical characters and then try to critique them and understand are they appropriate from a context is the language appropriate so so you can learn language and and develop these new types of assignments that allow people to see different aspects of writing and sort of learn in different ways as well as of course still you know expecting students to produce um, you know, and understand how to edit and write well.
1: Yeah, you know, I'm hearing all of this is again, this is a Detroit Today 313-577-1019 to get involved with the uh, conversation about how ChatGPT is changing higher education and letting us know uh, what concerns you might have. But as I think about everything that all of you guys are saying, and it is wonderful, it's about the output of the product, but that puts a lot of stress then on the professors now and the teachers to figure out, hey, what was the process that the student was using to to iterate and get to the point of this output, right? Because I think part of the concern that we have is as these chatbots get better and, you know, they start being more flattery, they start uh, maybe accepting prompts or getting a little bit better at getting us what we expect, the concern will be how much of that is coming from knowledge that the student is having and what they produce and how much of that work is getting put on the chatbot itself. So uh, Professor Allman, as someone who has uh, created a a, a syllabus or created a a class uh, idea itinerary uh, thinking of chat gpt what response would you have to that how did you work with figuring out uh, what your students put in versus what chat gpt spit out
4: yeah it's a it's a problem with without a really easy and straightforward solution like if you want to make sure that the student themselves understands the ideas and they're not just offloading that responsibility to the chatbot there are certain things that you can do Like you can turn to oral exams, which a lot of my colleagues have done, but that doesn't work very well in a large class. Some other people have been going medieval and using uh, paper and pencils. This gets back to the writing skills, you know, like my students can't write neatly for any length of time. Uh, And I think there is like the clever assignment sort of response uh, that a couple of the other people uh, that Professor White is talking about. And I do think that helps a little bit. Um, and there's also chatbot uh, detectors out there, but they're not super reliable quite yet. So I do feel like as a teacher, I'm a little bit at a crisis point. Like there isn't really a super good way to make sure that it's the students who understand the material and they're not offloading it to the chatbot.
1: Yeah. Professor Partha I present the question to you and the concern also.
3: Yeah, I mean, it is a real concern, <clears throat> and I think we're all dealing with it in, right. in different sorts of ways. I, I certainly think that as a someone whose assignments, ba- as I said before, are based on policy memos, it's a little bit easier for me, perhaps, than than for my colleagues who have math assignments um, where they can just kind of, right. you know, my some of my colleagues have said that that ChatGPT deserves about a minus B plus <laughs> in their classes. For me, the one of the things that I've I've heard about and then I want to think about um, adopting some version of is to actually ask students to generate memos using ChatGPT and then ask them to critique it. Mm. So I've heard of professors around the country who've used similar um Uh, assignments and when they've done so the students have actually learned what are the limitations of the technology what are the problems of it how with it how can I use it better um, and uh, where it where its role might actually be so I'm trying to think about it that way because again this is I mean Uh, perhaps a hidden secret is that professors, good professors always have to evolve on some level. And so this, yes, this is gonna require some of that.
1: I love that response because whenever I try to figure out if I know something, a topic or not, what I try to do is teach it to somebody else and I learn the gaps in my knowledge (laughs) really quickly. Exactly. Like maybe I don't understand that as well as I thought I did if I can't show somebody else. As we move right now to Frank in Green Oak Township. Frank, go ahead, you're on Detroit today.
5: Hi, good morning. Good morning. You know, I I think about food. You know, like your cereal that has all the ingredients listed, and we trust, you know, the uh, uh, you know FDA and you know requires these things for uh, food. You know, the same sort of thing is going on with if they're using these, uh, you know, artificial intelligence to write things. We should know that, and um, you know, so just like we're consuming food, we're consuming information. We're taking this in. It could be a danger to us if if something is really wrong about it. Uh, And then there should be penalties that, you know, this would be like fraud. If you were to present an article or an essay or a book or anything and and didn't disclose that you were using these, uh, you know, artificial intelligence, you could be brought up on simple fraud. It would be fraud, which is a, a felony.
1: Yeah, no, I appreciate those concerns. Right. This is something we've been dealing with in terms of plagiarism for a while. And this would just be another form. But I present the concerns to you, Professor Wright, as we're going to be closing out the segment. Got about 30 seconds for each of you. What response do you have? And uh, I'll get let you get an overall opportunity to summarize your points here on ChatGBT also.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Should definitely disclose. But I think it also it's really important to disclose how it was used, because certain uses are appropriate and certain are not. So as important as the fact that you're using it, knowing how it was used is really, really right. critical. Right,
1: and in terms of your summary overall and your thoughts on chat GPT, I'd give you that opportunity now, Professor White.
2: Yeah, I think it's, it's one of the most exciting things that's, I think it's gonna be one of the most impactful technologies on par with the internet. Um, and I think it's just really critical that we really lead with education, showing people the potential of it, showing how to them to use it appropriately, but also get way past that it can write essays and, and look like it's answering quiz questions and really start thinking of the much deeper and more profound use cases for it, because that's where it gets really exciting.
1: Uh, Professor Alman, how about you? Where are you at right now overall with ChatGPT and what do you want listeners to know?
4: I think on balance is a great thing for both students and teachers. For students, it's going to help them get individualized feedback and greatly improve the quality of their writing. Uh, For people like me who are teachers, it's great with coming up with concrete examples and discussion questions to uh, help relate to their students in a new generation. Yeah, there are concerns about plagiarism, um, but I think that they're outweighed by the benefits that it has to offer.
1: All right. And also, I want to loop you in on this uh, point as well. What are your overall thoughts and anything you want to make sure to share with the listeners, uh, Professor Parthasarathy, while I have you?
3: Yeah, um, I want to uh, start from where our last caller uh, ended, which is that I think that as a policy professor, of course, I think that we need to think about regulation uh, and public policy to to deal with ChatGPT and other kinds of generative AI. We need to think about watermarking—that is, you know, making sure we know when something is produced by this technology. We need transparency in the data that's used to generate the results. We need to think about where the use is, is appropriate and where it isn't, because one of the things, in addition to all of the kinds of complexities we've been talking about today, we haven't talked much about the issues with regards to inequality. And one of the concerns that I have is that it's going to actually exacerbate inequalities in all sorts of ways. Um, I already talked about the ways that which it might produce discriminatory data. But I worry with a lot of AI that it's being used you know, any kinds of ways of monitoring the technology might dis- disproportionately be used um, on already marginalized communities. And I think we need to think through all of those things as well.
1: Well, that is a very important concern. So I would present that opportunity to you now as someone who seems to have thought about it. What are guardrails that you think that we could put up to protect against issues like that?
3: I think the good news is that a lot of policymakers really are thinking about this and they are thinking about where we can, where we should use the technology and where we absolutely Absolutely should not use the technology. Uh, there are. We've also been talking about the kinds of things I was talking about in terms of watermarking, in terms of um, data transparency. But I think in terms of surveillance, this is where uh, we need to all be sensitized to where it's appropriate to use the technology and where it is not. And the fact that often technologies, unfortunately, tend to get disproportionately used against marginalized communities. And we've seen that with previous uses of AI, for example, throughout the pandemic, things like facial recognition technology and automated proctoring technologies were used to discriminate against um, communities of color often. And I think we can see that, you know, it's more likely that if we have um, uh, monitoring technologies for generative AI, that they're more likely to be deployed against again marginalized communities and we need to think and here we're not necessarily thinking about national policy we're thinking about school administrators and and school districts thinking about what are the processes by which we're going to make sure that these are monitoring technologies that are not used for example in a discriminatory way
1: well you know what we got another call here and i just love taking calls so why don't we get a little bit of bonus time on chat gpt with joe and rochester hills go ahead you're on detroit today
5: Hey, thanks. It's a great subject. Um, yeah, I, I, I mean, my, my comment around this is it's been hyped to no end. Um, I mean, there's so much energy getting put on this thing, it just blows me away. I mean, it's just another tool in our evolution. No big deal. I mean, we're going to have, you know, starts and stops with it. I mean, we started with, you know, the voice transmission, and then we had, uh, you know, that was vocal, and then we had the printing press. Then we had computers, and then we had the internet. You know, I, I mean, we could have this exact same discussion around Google and the results you get. How skewed are they? I mean, come on, this is to me, to me, the, the this can be like any other technology and the, and it's going to be a land grab on who who's going to run it and own it same darn thing like everything else but it's another tool
1: all right well i got to present that question professor white i'll let you take the word on that because i think you might have a response for joe in rochester hills
2: i think i think it's going to be like any other tool i agree in some aspects of that although i would say that i'd phrase it in the impact of level of like the internet so it's it's certainly um, I think it's going to move a lot faster as well as one of the big differentiators. So if you think back on the internet, we still had to get, you know, cable laid around the world and we had to get, you know, uh, access to the internet in our houses and we had to get Wi-Fi and all these things to really start seeing the potential and, and and then, you know, cellular access to it at all times. Whereas Chad GPT was turned on in December and everybody had access to it in, instantly essentially. So. I think that the the impact is going to be profound and the speed is also going to be something that's really unprecedented because of how easy it is to get access. Basically, everybody overnight got access to the most powerful A.I. on the planet. Yeah,
1: everybody with an Internet connection, Professor White, everybody with an Internet connection. But we're going to have to end it there. Professor White, Professor Partha Sarathi and Professor Amin, thank you all for joining us on Detroit Today.
2: Thank you.
3: Thank you.
1: When we return, we're going to continue looking at technology through the ages, specifically in terms of robots with a couple of guests and you. Detroit Today continues in just a moment. Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Nick Austin filling in for Stephen Henderson as we take a look at technology and how it has been a part of our lives for much of human history. In fact, it seems that because humans are so fascinated by tools that can improve our lives, we work to progress technology further and further as quickly as possible. In more recent years, technology is becoming so sophisticated, it may soon be difficult to tell the difference between it, the objects, and us humans. But how has technology changed over time? And more specifically, how have robots shifted in ways that operate in our lives? What even is a robot? The recently published book Robots Through the Ages is an anthology composed of many different science fiction tales that tries to answer these questions. Here now with us, we have two authors who wrote short stories in the book to discuss it. We have Paul Levinson, a professor of communications and media studies at Fordham University, and he contributed the story entitled Robinson Calculator. Paul, welcome back to Detroit Today. Hey, great to be back here. And with us also is Martin Shoemaker, who is an American computer programmer and award-winning science fiction author. He contributed the story Today I Know. Welcome, Uh, Martin. Welcome to Detroit Today.
6: Thank you. Good to be back here in the Detroit area.
1: Yeah, it's good to have you back. So let's start out with this question and make sure I have it right. What is a robot?
7: Well, a robot is something that's built that has some resemblance to human beings. And originally it was something made out of inanimate material but it had a head, it had a torso, it had arms, it had legs. But most importantly, it had something akin to a brain. It could think, it could do things. The question is how sophisticated was that brain? And of course, in science fiction, in order to make it interesting and exciting, that brain could lead to the robot rebelling against its human master, or the robot falling in love with its human master, all kinds of possibilities. And people have been thinking about these things for at least thousands of years. One of the tales in Robots Through the Ages, The Golem by Avram Davidson, talks about something that's a legend that's been around since the Middle Ages. A rabbi puts together a bunch of clay and creates an artificial thinking human-like being.
1: You know, that's interesting that you bring that up, because when I hear the term robots there, Paul, uh, one of the things I think about was the progression of technology here in Detroit in the auto industry, for example, when we had a lot of machines that started taking over work at the plant, and some would refer to those as robots. So, Martin, I want to move to you now and ask, uh, what is the line between technologies that are robots and those that aren't?
6: It really is a blurry line. Uh, Our editor, Robert Silverberg, science fiction grandmaster, goes into this a lot in his introductory essay. It's a very blurry line. The definition is somewhat up to the observer because the first robots I ever saw were those automotive industrial robots. And they do not think in any particular sense, they just follow instructions very repeatedly with pretty much just their own initiatives, that here comes the part, here comes the bolt, I'm going to put the bolt in the part. So mechanically today, industrially, we think of anything that does repeated program motions as a robot, but literally, like Paul says, the interesting part is that they are a metaphor for thinking and being and understanding the condition of being alive through an entirely different perspective.
1: Well, let's take a look at some of these stories, then uh, jumping off that point from the book as we look at this linkage. Paul, uh, your story is entitled Robinson Calculator, as we mentioned. Martin, yours is Today I Know. But they're different stories, uh, but the thing linking them is the way humans treat technology uh, like humans themselves, and there's not a lot of separation between them. So moving back to you, Paul, why do you think people interact that way with technology?
7: Well, that's a very, very good question. Marshall McLuhan uh, famously said that media are extensions of ourselves. So when we drive a car, it's really an extension of our feet and our arms, except we're driving this machine. Computers and robots, precisely because, at least in science fiction and now increasingly in reality, they do have some kind of thinking mechanism. We tend to think of them as, in some sense, like us, m- much more than any other machine. And uh, that's why it's a really interesting question. You know, we we all uh, have experience with the miracle of life. Uh, We we have babies, we have relatives who have babies. So we see this happen all the time. But of course, the difference between a uh, robot and a human being is that the robot is built from inanimate material and in that sense it's a a really very profound thing because and it's almost a philosophic religious thing that you could almost say that in the most intelligent of these robots in science fiction at least Maybe they have even a soul. And if that's the case, well, then what is the difference between the robot and the human being?
1: You know, that makes me think of things like a cyborg when you merge people with machines and it's like part man, part machine versus a robot versus androids. We've thought about as well, uh, which I guess is more when there's a more synthetic human like material in it. But whatever the case with lots of movies that we see. There is a lot that comes into people uh, treating uh, machines, robots, like people, and wanting them to act more like people back to them. So I move to you, Martin. Do you think it's dangerous to pay, make technology out to be human-like and to anthropomorphize, uh, promorphize robots?
6: Uh, there are dangers to it. I also think it is unavoidable. Mm. Uh, your your prior segment on ChatGPT. A big part of the issue with ChatBGPT is people trust it. Mm -hmm. People look at it and think it must know what it's talking about. They're investing it with what they think, what they believe a person would be doing. And that happens with the robots, that (laughs) the robots are perceived as having these human-like qualities. And that can sometimes lead to people assuming the machine's smarter than it really is.
1: You know, it's interesting. I would think that one of the reasons uh, perhaps JetGPT works the way it does or the most successful, let's just say, robots are the ones that we can interact with like people. That's a more pleasing experience for human beings to have, right? Like the difference between when we were talking to maybe a Google uh, voice and when people talk to Siri. One of the reasons they like talking to Siri is she sounded like a person talking back to you. It was a more human experience. So it makes me think about how technologies like this, and in this case, when we're talking about robots, specifically robots, uh, may have changed uh, the world around us. Uh, Paul, over time, uh, do you think robots have had an impact on our world, and how has that uh, occurred?
7: Well, in science fiction, they've certainly had an impact on our world. People who have read these stories, in some cases, for example, Marvin Minsky, the late AI researcher and scientist, uh, a professor at MIT, said very Famously, that one of the reasons why he got so interested in AI and robots was because he read Isaac Asimov's robot stories when he was a, a kid, and through movies, even and television shows, even people who don't read these stories, they see them talk talked about and and brought to life on the screen. Let me just say the one quick thing though about ChatGPT, please. Uh, I I'm, maybe I'm in the minority, but I'm not that worried about it. I mean as a professor i get why professors are concerned about they don't want chat gpt writing a student paper okay but but as far as uh, ai in general doing damage i think it's important to point out all the great things that they're already doing. For example, you can now do brain scans and through AI be able to predict if a brain is likely to develop a malignant tumor long before that tumor appears. And that's an incredibly important accomplishment.
1: Yeah, and you know, I got about 30 seconds left, but I don't think people are necessarily saying you can't have positive things there, Paul. They're just concerned about the Skynet scenario, Terminator, where all of a sudden a, a, a a thing we don't understand, makes calculations and then at some point decides to do something that we don't appreciate or that we tell it to do something that we don't understand and it executes the order uh, a little bit improperly. So like I said, I got about 30 seconds. What response would you have to people who have those concerns?
7: I would say so far, so good. And we're nowhere near Terminator technology. And uh, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger was a great actor. It's science fiction, not reality, not even close to it.
1: All right. Well, we're going to have to end it there. Uh, Martin Shoemaker, a computer programmer and award-winning science fiction author, as well as Paul Leverson, a professor at Fordham University. Thanks so much for joining us on Detroit Today. Our Thank pleasure. you. That's going to do it for us here on Detroit Today, 1019 WDET-FM, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll be back Monday to celebrate Juneteenth with you, highlighting some of the celebrations happening in our area, as well as taking a look at the history of reparations and how it's operated in other countries. That's going to do it for us today. Producer for this episode is Sam Corey. We'll be back again on Monday.